All right, we're in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 13. In Psalm 146, the psalmist sings, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. And it's a good reminder for us today as we look forward to Tuesday when votes will be counted and we will find out, Lord willing, who our next president will be. Uh, Some have been looking forward to this election because they think uh, their candidate will be the one who will make all things right. He or she will fix everything that is wrong with our country. In fact, uh, just yesterday at a football game, I saw a hat and it said, uh, save America, vote Trump. Save America, vote Trump. Now, it would have been just as bad, in my opinion, if it had been any other name on that hat. Save America, vote whoever. What that shows is that we, someone is looking to this candidate or that candidate in order to save something as almost a sort of national savior. If my candidate wins, then we'll be set and all will be okay in the world. But if the other person gets it, well, then we're doomed. Now, certainly we would like to do what we can to promote the peace and prosperity of our nation. We want to be involved in the political process. We want to to seek the good of our nation. And yet, it's amazing to to me how sometimes we can begin to think that a person or or even a, a party or a judge will usher in a sort of a golden age of America when all things will be right. But you and I know that the only person who will usher in a golden age anytime is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? Our hope is in Him. He is our King. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But sometimes we, we can even begin to have wrong thoughts like this about our own Christian life. Now, perhaps we don't think in terms of a prosperity gospel. Uh, We know that becoming a Christian doesn't make everything easy in our lives, and we know that often it makes things more difficult, makes things more challenging. But I have often encountered Christians who think that as long as they basically follow the rules of the Bible, as long as they basically try to be good people and go to church week in and week out, that God will do his part and keep bad things from happening to them and their family. As long as I do my part, they think, God will be obligated to do his part and keep the really bad things from happening to us. But the Bible presents us with a different view of the Christian life. In fact, our passage for this morning shows us these two competing views of the Christian life. In the one corner, we have the view of the Corinthians who think that uh, the Christian life is all about achieving your dreams and having a great life and being fulfilled in, in uh, earthly terms. But Paul presents a different view. We might could say it's a darker view of the Christian life. It's not at all pleasant. It's the way of weakness. It's the way of sacrifice and suffering. We could say it's the way of the cross. So look with me at our passage, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to 13. Paul says there, I have applied these things 
to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would teach us by it. We pray that you would Give us understanding that we might uh, truly see and, and hear what it is you have for us in your word. And we pray that it would, we would do more than simply hear it. We pray that you would give us faith to believe all that you've said. We pray that you would give us strength to obey it by your spirit and by your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In these verse, verses, Paul contrasts the Christian view of uh, the, the Corinthian view of the Christian life and Paul's, his own view of the Christian life. He contrasts what they're trying to get, what they're striving for, and what he and the apostles are actually getting, how they're actually uh, living. And notice, Paul uses sarcasm to get his point across. Paul uses sarcasm by trying to shake, shake them, by trying to wake them up to the realities of what it means to follow Christ. He wants to calls them to understand their, their wrong thinking. He wants to correct them and their view about the Christian life. And really, this is a much-needed correction for Christians today. For us, there are many Christians, too, who view the, the Christian life as the Corinthians did. For them, it's all about achieving success, ex- achieving your dreams as the world measures these things, reaching the top, having a full and fulfilled life in the here and now, becoming rich in the things of this world, having everyone around you admire you and think that you are strong and wise and influential. But there's a problem with this, isn't there? If you define Christian success in these terms, in how strong you are and how wise you are and how influential you are, what do we do with the thousands and thousands of Christians who live around the world who have none of these things? Who have no power, who have no wisdom as the world counts wisdom, who have no influence. Poor Christians around the world. What do we do with them? And what do we do with Paul, who, did, who is not seen as living the victorious Christian life? And perhaps most of all, what do we do with Jesus, who lived a life of suffering and sorrow and suffered a horrible death on the cross? See, this is what Paul is doing for the Corinthians. He's holding up his own example and saying, okay, what are you going to do with me? If you view, view the Christian life in this way, what are you going to do with me? With my life. They are left to conclude they should either reject Paul as their leader. 
because he wasn't up to par, or they should reject their own messed up view of the Christian life. So first, I want you to see the pride of the Corinthians, the pride of the Corinthians. Look at how Paul speaks to them in verse 6. He says he's been applying these things to himself and Apollos for their benefit so that they might take the things he's been talking about to heart. They are simply servants of Christ. They have a special place in God's plan to preach the gospel and to plant churches. But don't put too much stock in your leaders. Don't boast in them. Don't glory in them. Don't deify them. They shouldn't go beyond these teachings of Paul and the scripture to think too highly of themselves. Uh, Paul and Apollos weren't puffed up and neither should they be. And look at the, the questions Paul uses to help them see that there's no place for pride in the Christian life. First question, he says, who sees anything different in you? In other words, who's been the judge, and sa- judge of you and said you were so great? Who, who is it that said you are so special? Why do you have this mind about your, yourself? So he's trying to get them to think about why is it that they're so puffed up, so proud about themselves? The second question is, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? The spiritual gifts you have, your influence, what you think is wisdom, your strength, your forgiveness of sins, your salvation and standing before God. Where did all this come from? From yourselves or was it given to you? And then the third question is, and if you have received it, in other words, if it was just given to you, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, why do you act like you're all that when all that you have has been given to you by grace? Maybe you've seen the kids in the end zone at the Carolina Panthers games. Now, the Panthers aren't scoring many touchdowns this season, so it's not happening quite as often. But when they do, the player will often run over to the bleachers, and there are these crowds of kids just trying their best to get the football because they know the players are going to reach up and hand them a football and their dreams are going to come come true. They're all desperate. They're desperate. I want it. I want it. Give me that football. Now, what if the kid who got the ball carried it around and said, this is my ball. I got it all by myself. Look at this real NFL football. You know, I scored a touchdown with this ball. This is my football. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? What did he do to get the ball? He simply held out his hands and received it. There's nothing to brag about. To brag about something you've gotten simply as a gift is to totally miss the point. Gifts are meant not to make us arrogant and proud, but to humble us. They're supposed to make us give thanks rather than to brag or be arrogant. But sadly, there are... Some believers, and we may fall in this, who we act like we've earned all that we have. Like we've done what it takes to get God's favor and love. We might look down on someone because they don't have all the things that we have. We might look down on them because they don't have the same theology that we have. We're more biblical than they are. We have a better idea of what Scripture teaches. They don't have all their theological I's dotted and their T's crossed. They just... You know, poor things, they don't have the discernment we have or the, the morals that we have or the commitment that we have. But brothers and sisters, what is it that you have that you didn't first receive? And if you've received it, then why would you ever look down on anyone else for those reasons? Why would you consider yourself as better than them as though you haven't received what you have? 
See, this is a great and needed reminder of God's grace to you and me in Christ. Every good thing we have, we have received from the Lord. Like a a kid with empty hands stretched out. Desperate to receive His mercy and grace. We are completely at His will, His desire, His mercy to give us the grace that we need. I love uh, teaching kids how to play sports. It's fun to see them thinking and growing and learning fundamentals of the game. But usually, the kids, especially at a very young age, they don't know how to play the different sports. So if you throw a football at a, a young kid who's never played football before, do you know what he might do? He might get out of the way. He might shield himself. Why are you throwing a football at me? What are you, why are you trying to hurt me like that? But what do you do? You go over to them and you hold their hands out. You, you grab their hands and you put their hands out and you say, okay, put your hands just like this. Hold them. Now I'm going to throw you the ball and you toss it right into the bread basket, right where their hands are. You say, just keep your hands right there. Don't move or do anything. I'm just going to toss this ball into your hands. And this is what God's grace to us is like. For he not only gives us the grace, he puts our hands in the position that we might receive his grace. It is all of grace. It's all from the Lord from first to last. It is the grace of God, not only the gifts that he gives us, but the faith to receive them. He puts us in a position to receive his grace. Every good gift we have has come down from the Father who is full of mercy and grace. And how could you be proud when you think of it like this? You can't. There's no place for pride in the Christian life, Paul is saying. And yet this is exactly what we see in the Corinthians. They were filled with pride even though everything they had had been received. But notice second, how this impacted, how this changed, how they viewed the Christian life. Notice their view of the Christian life. Their view we might call the way of glory. The way of glory, the glorious Christian life. Look at Paul's sarcasm in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you've become kings. And I wish that you did reign. I wish that you were kings because then we might share the rule with you. As is the case sometimes in the letters of Paul, he indulges himself in speaking, he calls it foolishly, in order to get a point across. He's trying to help them see just how foolish they are with this sarcasm. Paul speaks as though the Corinthians believe they have arrived in the kingdom of God, in the new heavens, in the new earth, as though the kingdom of God has completely come down on them in Corinth, and they are reigning. They are kings. We'll look more at de- uh, in more detail at what the apostle says his life is like, but notice first how he characterizes the Corinthians in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Remember, he's being sarcastic. We are weak. You are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. Uh, This is a contrast. Paul is showing how foolishly they are acting in their view of the Christian life. It's interesting Paul uses the word already a couple times. Did you see that? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Sounds like the Corinthians have been listening to some modern day preachers who uh, are all about prosperity in this life. But I say it's interesting that Paul uses the word already because this is a term Uh, Christians often use to talk about the kingdom of God and the age which is to come. There's what we call the already of God's kingdom, which includes things like forgiveness of sins. We already have forgiveness of sins in Christ. 
Like justification, God's pronouncement, His declaration, you are righteous in my sight because of Christ and His work. Adoption into God's family. The beginnings of sanctification. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We already have these things. They are ours in Christ. In these things, the kingdom of God is already coming down and expressing itself. But there's also what we call the not yet of God's kingdom. There's the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. This not yet includes the completion of our sanctification, the glorification of our bodies, the renewal of all things, the end of suffering and pain and sin, and reigning with Christ in the world to come. There's an already and a not yet of the kingdom, but we can't mix these these things up. We can't say God's kingdom is completely already here. And we can't say that none of His kingdom is here. Rather, we hold these things in tension with one another. We affirm both of them as long as we are here in this life. So what the Corinthians were doing were overemphasizing the already of the kingdom. So the reformer Martin Luther called this a theology of glory. They thought that visible success and comfort and power were signs of God's blessing. Signs that they were mature in Christ. Signs that God was pleased with them. That they were arriving spiritually. And in contrast to this, Martin Luther promoted what is called a theology of the cross. And this refers to the biblical idea that since Christ walked in the way of suffering in the cross, this is what we as his followers should expect as well. Or as Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone among you wishes to be great, let him become the servant of all. Or as Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, what must he do? Take up his cross daily. Deny himself. Follow me. In a theology of the cross, weakness is power. Service is greatness. Humility is a path to wisdom. I knew a man uh, quite a few years ago who was diagnosed with a terminal cancer and aggressively spreading cancer. The doctors were doing all they could, but it didn't seem like there was any hope at all. And I remember hearing through the grapevine that there were some Christians in his, in his circle who were suggesting that he must be sinning in some way. Evidently, there must be some hidden sin in his life that he had not confessed. Or if he would just turn away from that sin, or if he would just have more faith, if he would just have enough faith, then God would heal him and all would be well. Can you imagine the pain he must have suffered from that as well as the cancer? But this idea, of course, completely ignores the person and work of the one who whose name that we have taken as our own, as Christians. We are Christians. We we follow Christ. We look to Christ. And we follow his life. What do we see when we look at his life but a life filled with suffering and pain? And yet Jesus was completely without sin. So you couldn't attribute Jesus' suffering to his sin. He had no sin. He didn't deserve sufferings and yet he couldn't escape it. He didn't escape it. He willingly endured it. He suffered even when all of his friends had left him. He suffered on the cross by himself with some of his closest friends who were even denying knowing him. And he did this for our sake. He did this as a sacrifice for our sin that we might have life. That any and all who come to him in faith, trusting in him to save them by grace, will have everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. Now this 
Brothers and sisters, this is our leader. This is our king. This is the one we worship. This is the one who saved us by his death. This is the one we love above all. And this is the one we pattern our lives after. And yet, how often might we wish to pursue comfort in this life? How often might we want to pursue power and influence and prestige in this life according to the patterns of this world? Now, there, there is resurrection, right? There is resurrection. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. And that is the promise we have in Christ. But it has not yet come. That's a part of the not yet of the kingdom that we long for. We, we must treasure those blessings of the kingdom we have already received and wait patiently for the fullness of the kingdom to be revealed. And Let me apply this to us with the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not, not for the, the strong and powerful in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is exactly how Paul describes his life and the lives of his fellow apostles. We saw the pride of the Corinthians and their view of the uh, Christian life. Now, look at another view of the Christian life, that of Paul. If the Corinthian view is the way of glory, Paul's view is the way of the cross. See verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The image Paul gives here is that he and the other apostles are being put on a public display of humiliation. Like they're on death row and now they're in a slow procession to their execution. This is the image Paul has of his life. And notice that he doesn't blame the people who are mistreating him or those who don't supply his needs. Who does he attribute this suffering to? He says God has exhibited us in this way. For Paul, every aspect of his suffering and mistreatment is under the sovereign hand of God. And it is subject to the will of God. Nothing would happen without his permission. And this can be difficult for us to understand, can't it? I don't want to make light of the sufferings of this life, and I don't think Paul does. It's mysterious. We dare not make God the author of evil. Because then he would be implicated in doing evil. But we dare not say it's out of his control either. For then how could we know he would ever be able to rein it in or get it back under control? How could we know he would win in the end? And of course, uh, in theology, we have some nice, tidy explanations for all of this. But we, we must recognize there's a lot of mystery in this as well. There's a lot of tension here. But in the midst of our sufferings, we stand in His grace by faith. The conviction of God's goodness and the conviction of His sovereignty are the two legs which hold us up in faith. 
do harm to one leg, and we begin to stumble and fall in our faith. But these truths, God's goodness and his sovereignty, uh, enabled Paul to make sense of his troubles and to trust God in the midst of them. Take a look at the way, ways Paul describes himself and the apostles in the rest of these verses. Verse 10, we're fools for Christ's sake. We're weak. We're held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. All these descriptive words are, are weakness and foolishness in the, in the eyes of the Corinthians. And if we're honest, we would see them that way as well. Do you really want to be considered a fool at work? Do you really want to be considered a fool in your neighborhood or at school? Do you want to be thought of as weak? Right? Some, some of us go out and work out several times a week because we don't want to be weak. We want to be strong. Who here wants to be dishonored, to be held in disrepute? Do you want to be hungry and thirsty? Do you want to be poorly dressed, treated badly, homeless? Or look at how the apostles responded when they were treated badly. How do you feel when someone insults you harshly? When somebody makes fun of you at school? When somebody bullies you? Do you feel like blessing them? Do you feel like answering kindly back to them? Do you want to endure persecution? But notice how he sums it up at the end of verse 13. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Do you recognize the words that he's using here? Do you recognize this image Paul is conjuring up for the Corinthians? It's kind of like this. I came out of a store last week or a couple weeks ago, and just as I was getting in my car, I must have stepped on something because I stepped on the brake and my foot slipped a little bit. It was almost like... I had uh, a plastic wrapping something on the bottom of my foot, and it just felt kind of slippery. So I just reached down to get it off. And then when I did that, I noticed it wasn't plastic. <laughs> it was not good. Uh, it was something wet and greasy, something had, that had a rotten smell to it. It was horrible. So I got out of the car and was stomping all around, trying to get this nasty stuff off of my foot. And these two words, scum and refuse, refer to some of the grossest stuff you can think of. Stuff you scrape off the bottom of your shoe. Paul says, this is how the world sees us. This is how the world sees us. Now, of course, none of us want any of those things, do we? We don't want to be seen in that way. And and Paul didn't pursue those things. He didn't pursue looking like that to the world. What did he do? He pursued Christ. He pursued Christ. He pursued making Christ known and enjoying Christ in His grace. He lived a life for Christ. He lived a life in the power and wisdom of the cross. And this is where it got Him in the eyes of the world. Looking like the trash of the world. He didn't pursue these things, but He was content in them. For He says in the letter to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
And this verse isn't about achieving new heights at your job or on the football field. It's about God's grace, which enables us to be humble in strength and to endure hardship for the sake of Christ. Paul didn't pursue these things, but he was content in them. And do you know why? And he wasn't just content in them. He boasted in them. Because in another letter to the Corinthians, he said, it's because God's grace is sufficient for me. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. I am content with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you feel weak in this life? Do you face struggles and challenges? Boast in those weaknesses. For in Christ, His power is made manifest in your weaknesses. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would take this word and correct our view. Any wrong understandings we have of the Christian life or what we should expect. Correct our view of sufferings and and trials and hardships. So that we might be content in them knowing that your grace is sufficient for us. Use those trials, those hardships to drive us deeper into Christ. That we might live for you. That we might live for your glory knowing all the grace that you have for us in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.